Let's turn back to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. And I'm going to ask you to grant me a little bit of liberty this morning with the Word of God as we look to Ephesians 5. And I want to um, expand and continue talking a little more about what I began talking about last week where we, we looked at the church of God as it's described in the Scripture as a body, as a bride, as a family. And there's one specific thing that I mentioned in that that I didn't have time to elaborate on, and I hope to today. And that is how the body, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, is to nurture and encourage one another. Nurturing and encouraging one another. And we take this from Ephesians 5, at least the starting point. So as I read this, I don't think I've ever preached and taught specifically on the, the role of the church that is revealed here, although I believe that is the ultimate meaning of what's going on. That's why Paul says that this is a great mystery. So you say, well, I'm not a church member. or Well, I, I don't really understand you know, what it means to, you know, to nurture and encourage. Okay, so if you're a husband, you can get this lesson here today because it's talking about husbands and wives. If you're a wife, you can get this lesson here today out of what we're talking about because the comparison is to how husbands and wives interact is, has to do with how the church of God interacts. You say, well, I'm not a husband or a wife. You might want to be one one day or you might have been one. So forth and so on. If you're a child, you know, everything that I'm fixing to go over ties in to everybody under the sound of my voice. So as we read this, I'm reading it from the direction of the lesson to the church of God. Okay? So I'm going to take just a little bit of liberty with the wording and leave a few things out because we're focusing on Christ as the head of the church. The church of God being His body and how the body is to interact and nurture and encourage one another. Let's begin in verse 22. And I'm going to read this with some liberty, remember. It says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So here's the liberty I'm taking. Members of the church, submit yourselves unto your husband Christ. He is the Lord. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. The lesson for the church is, For Christ is the head of the church, the body. And He is the Savior of the body. Verse 24. You see how we're doing this? Hope you're okay with it. Verse 24. Let's read it. As related to the church. Therefore, church, be subject unto Christ as wives would subject themselves to their own husbands and everything. Verse 25. Christ loves His church, His wife, and He gave Himself for it. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Didn't change a thing there, did it? That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now we go to verse 28. So ought members of the church to love their fellow church members, the wife of Christ, as they love their own bodies. See how that's an all-encompassing lesson, not just for husbands, not just for wives, not just for adults, not just for children, but it's for the church. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. There's where we get our nurturing, nourishing, and encouraging. Even as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church, for we are members of His body, the church, of His flesh and of His bones. For this cause... Shall a baptized church member leave his father and mother, his family, his 
endeavors in the world and leave the world in general and shall be joined unto the church through baptism. And they too shall be one flesh in Christ. Paul says this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. And even though he's saying, even though this may be difficult to comprehend when it comes to the, the glory and the magnificence of the church's relationship with Christ, he says, nevertheless... Let every one of you in particular so love Christ's church, even as he loves himself. And the church see that she reverence her husband. So we can easily conclude from that that, if, that you can't reverence Christ if you don't reverence the church of God. And I'm not talking about some untouchable aspect of some ecclesiastical term of a church. I'm talking about the members of the church of God. You can't reverence Christ if you don't reverence and encourage and cherish the church of God, which is not something untouchable. It's the people of God. Does that make sense? So as we delve into this and we look at how Christ loved the church, I want you to look and let's focus in on verse 23 where it says, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. How did he love the church? He gave himself for the church. He's the savior of the church. Now, the word Savior is an interesting word right there. It is the Greek word soter, and it ties totally into the definition of the body of Christ because that's the word that connects to the Greek word sozo, which means to save. So you've got soter, which means Savior, and he's saving the body, which is sozo, which is the occurrence of the word save throughout the New Testament. So you see, it, it ties directly to God saving you, Christ saving you, and not only saving you in an eternal sense, but He's given you the church here for deliverance here and now. A place to come to, a place to worship, a place to encourage and exhort one another. That's what Christ did for us. Let's look at verse 25 of Ephesians 4. What does it mean to nurture, to nourish, and encourage the people of God in the church of God? He says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So we are to submit and subject ourselves to him and to one another. You know, think about it. Let me put it from a real practical standpoint. If you love me, if I, if I technically hear from the word of God, you know, God sees me as the head of my household, as the husband, as the father. And if you love me, you say, I love you, Brother Tim. But if you mistreat my family, that's showing that you don't love me. Y'all get that? Does that make sense? You say, well, I love Brother Tim, but you know, I, you know, I'm not going to call any names. But I just don't care for so-and-so. That's not the case. But you understand that is a violation of your profession of love for me. And in a much greater way. You say, I love Jesus Christ. I love the Lord. But if we mistreat one another then that's a violation of your profession for the love of the head of the church. Do y'all see that? I hope that makes sense. That's what he's trying to get across right here. To be subject one to another. The whole last part of chapter 5 is not just related to husbands and wives or the church. It's talking about submission in general. Submitting yourselves one to another in love. That's a reflection of the love that Christ had for you and for his people, for his church at this moment, I'm speaking to you. That's the love that Christ has for you right now as a church. So you can't say, well, I love Christ, but I just really don't care for all of my fellow church members. That is not accurate. It doesn't go along with the profession of love for Christ. 
Notice it's all about the body. He says Christ was the Savior of the body. Verse 23. I mentioned this last week, but you need to save your body. You need to take care of your body. Don't wreck your body. Preserve your body. Take care of yourself. You say, why? I can do anything I want to with my body. Not according to the Word of God. You don't own your body. It belongs to Christ. And He paid for it at Calvary. So I say, I can just do anything I want to. That's not what the Word of God teaches. You were bought with a price, it says. The price was the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. And child of grace, He wrecked His body. He wrecked Himself. He wrecked His soul so that you would be bought with a price. So the local church body, the called out assembly, what the Word of God refers to as the ecclesia, the called out assembly, it was bought with a price. It's not a toy. It's not God's plaything. It's God's body. And He's the head of it. The lives and the souls of the local church are precious in the sight of God. They should be precious in the sight of each other. Now, look at the dynamics of this. And notice that this ties to how we interact with one another. Verse 25, it says, He loved the church and gave Himself for it. The word love is agape. You're familiar with that term. We've used it many times. Agape love. That's a different kind of love than eros. It's a different kind of love than phileo, which is you know friendliness. It is love that lays itself down. This is the kind of love you want to have and focus on whenever you get married one day or if you are married. Agape love. Lay your life down type love. It's not just feelings and it's not just physical and it's not just emotional type stuff. It is, I'll lay my life down for this person. If you evaluate what you're about to do when you're maybe about to get married and you say, well, you know, I just don't know if I can do that, then don't do it. I just don't know that I can lay my life down for this person. Husband, wife, whatever it may be. Well, then don't do it, please. I beg you. You're going to cause disaster with your life and other people's lives if you do. But that's the kind of love that Christ has for you and for the church, His body. It means to give up, to surrender, to deliver up. I love this. To hazard. It even means to put in prison. You know, Christ literally imprisoned Himself in a fleshly form. He is all God and He's all man. You know, He put Himself in the form of flesh so that He could experience everything that you experience. That right there alone was Him giving up something, laying Himself down. God laid down some level of His godliness to enter into a body which was a different experience, but He's still, that's a mystery, He's still all God and yet He's all man without sin. That's a laying down that, that I'm telling you, child, you say, well, I just can't really catch on to that. Just try to catch on to it. You can't ever really catch on to it, but you can ponder it throughout your whole life and you'll marvel at it in eternity when you see the God-man in His flesh. As I've said many times, He'll appear in heaven three days and three nights right past the cross because that's what the form that His body will be in. He's resurrected three days and three nights after the cross and the scars will be there. The flesh will be there. And he'll be glor- He's glorified right now. You'll ponder that for ages in eternity. There's no ages, but you understand. I'm trying to help you understand. Him laying down Himself and coming to this earth and caging Himself, imprisoning Himself for those 33 and a half years here so that He could accomplish the saving of your physical body, of your spiritual body, of the body of Christ, of all of God's children. That is a surrendering that we can truly not comprehend. He hazarded Himself. He, he brought great hazard upon Himself by doing that. You know, when I was studying this, I just couldn't stop thinking about Lot. <laughs> of all of the characters in the Word of God, aside from Jesus Christ, 
I think I may have studied Lot more than any because he's just, he's just it's fascinating. It's tragic to study the life of Lot. And so what came to mind, and, and Brother Luke, we haven't mentioned the Lord of the Rings in a while, but Brother Luke and I share that great affinity for that, and some of you do too. But I think about the great scenes of courage and bravery that's in a, a show like that, a movie like that, a book like that, literature like I love those things where, where somebody, at, at the risk of their own life, they lay their lives on the line and you say, well, I'd be willing to do that for, you know, for my spouse, for whatever. I tell you, for the spouse, for the, for the wife, for the husband, that's a lifetime commitment. You say, are you serious that it's courageous for me to take the trash out if that's what I've agreed to do? I'm telling you, that is courageous. Do what you've agreed to do. Lay your life down by taking the trash out. And it just, if you do the little things, it just means you'll do bigger things. You see? But I was thinking about the courageous scenes that I've read about in history or literature, good literature, and then my mind's just drawn back to that fateful night when the angels were inside Lot's house and his two daughters were there and his wife was there and the wicked sodomites of the city come banging on the door and they want to take the angels, which they didn't understand they were angels. They're about to. (laughs) They want to take the angels and, and commit atrocities against them because they're wicked. No different than our society today. And I was thinking about how different we would think about Lot if instead of going to the door and you know, going outside and say, hey, uh, don't do this wicked act. You know, hey, take my daughters. <laughs> what a coward. 5,000 years ago, something like that, 4,000 years ago, And we still speak of that man today in a non-courageous act right there. How different would it have been, Brother Luke, if he'd have walked out there and he said, who wants some of this first? You're not having my the angels that are in my house. You're not touching my daughters, my wife. I'm ready to die. What a different sermon I would be preaching to you today if we had that picture of courage, of life. You say, well, that would have just wound, that would have been his last breath. So what if it was? And, and, it, and it wouldn't have been his last breath. You know why? Because there's two angels standing inside there fixing to come out there and whack! He's got everything behind him at that point, you see? But you, here, here's the point. Here's why I thought of this. Did he nurture or encourage his daughters? Did he nourish or encourage his wife? They're in there hearing what's going on. And they're thinking, this guy doesn't care anything about us. And that's very evident a few weeks or days later, is it not? Up in the mountain, up in the cave. I'll let you go read that for yourself. Stunning, isn't it? How, how cowardly that was. And again, I'm not just speaking to the men, I'm speaking to us all, because we all need courage today. Man, woman, or child, we need courage in the darkness that comes at us. But look at what a horrible example that is. And ask yourself the question, even if it just comes down to taking out the trash, Shakespeare said, you know, methinks the lady doth protest too much. Well, you can tell Brother Tim's protesting too much, you know, because that's something I struggle with. Got to remember to take out the trash. But if it's as simple as taking out the trash or something big, like going out and taking on a a town of of sodomites who are trying to destroy your family, you know, we ought to be able to to do that in the big things as well as the little things. We need courage. But I'm going to tell you this, child of God. When those moments come to you, whether it's life and death on the line or it's the trash on the line, I want you to know that God is behind you if you're serving Him. Lot could see the two angels in his house and he knew who they were. And yet he still did those things. 
in a cowardly way. And if I need to apologize to Lot for calling him a coward down here on earth, I will when I see him in heaven. I'll do it. He's up there now. He knows what he did that wasn't right. But we need courage to know that God is behind us. Take the stand. Say the word in kindness and love. Don't shirk back from what you have before you. The alternative is disaster. Lots of born-again children of God wander around and wonder, you know, why it seems like nobody cares for them and nobody, you know, wants to help me. Nobody wants to do anything for me. You know why? It's because they're concentrating on themselves. It's because they're concentrating on themselves. And you don't have time to think about other people when you're concentrating on yourself. Oh, I tell you, if God's people could latch on to what I'm preaching to you here this morning about preferring others more than yourself, I tell you, revival would come like you have never seen. So I don't really want to take out the trash. Well, if you're committed to do it or you're asked to do it, you ought to do it. <laughs> you know, I don't really want to sacrifice this time that I love to go. And I'm not just picking on the hunters. I love to hunt too. Love to go hunt or love to go work or love to go shopping or what. You know, are you telling me that if I sacrifice this time and give that time to someone else that that's what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Doesn't mean that you can't have, you know, hunting time, shopping time, you know, fishing time. It doesn't mean that. It just means that in order to experience what God would have us to experience in nurturing and encouraging one another, you have to lay down your life. That means laying down the things that are precious and important to you and giving it to someone else. You know, you could go up to an angry person and you could say, hey, uh, you know, I don't mean maybe, maybe they're not even angry at the moment. But if they are angry at the moment, you could go up and say, hey, you know, you're an angry person and the word of God, you know, condemns being angry. What's that person going to say? No, I'm not. I'm not angry. Leave me alone. You know, they're going to shout at you in anger probably. You could go up to someone who's addicted to something. Say, look, now look, you, you know, you're addicted and you have this problem. And I'm just going to tell you, in my experience through the court system, 99.9% .9 of the time when you do that with someone who is addicted to something, they say, no, I'm not. I can handle this. <laughs> so if you'd have gone up to Lot that night and said, Lot, now you're not, you know, they did. The, the angels did this. <laughs> and they said, you're in a bad spot. You know, you need to get out of here. And Lot's just like, what? what, what? No, 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 I'm not. So I tell you that, so maybe... Like Brother Luke preached on Wednesday night, which hit me really hard about going to the mirror and seeing the biggest fool you may see. You know, that's, that's where you may see the biggest fool is when you look in the mirror. Ask yourself in the mirror, you got any no, I'm nots? You know, if you got some no, I'm nots, no, I'm not, then you probably are. You see, it's very sobering. So let me show you as we close here today what this does not look like, nurturing and encouraging. Look at Job, the 16th chapter. Job the 16th chapter. Maybe Job comes in second for me on the number of times that I've studied his life in the book of Job. And I feel like I probably understand less now than I did when I first started. But in Job the 16th chapter, this is where we get a, a, an incredible oxymoron in the Word of God. Okay, what do you mean by that? You know what an oxymoron is. Listen, Job 16 and 1. Job answered the men that were there to comfort him. And he said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a miserable comforter. The word miserable right there means to work severely and with irksomeness, to irk someone. You know, he's saying, y'all are wearing me out. You know, an oxymoron, if, if you can't catch on to that, it, it's like saying jumbo shrimp. Y'all get that? That's an oxymoron. 
Another oxymoron is adult children. <laughs> you know, friendly fire. Miserable comforters. He's telling these guys, y'all are wearing me out. Y'all came here to bring comfort to me, to nurture and encourage me, and you're wearing me out. Comfort means to sigh, to breathe strongly, to be sorry, to pity, to console. I tell you, I didn't ask for permission to tell you all this, but it's pretty funny. I'll just beg for forgiveness later for Sister Tracy. <laughs> we were going along the other day, and I've got this bad tendency of, when I got things weighing down on me, I just kind of have to expel that, and I go, <sighs> you know, that's just my thing. I, I have this big sigh. You know, throughout whatever's going on in my secular work or church things or whatever, sometimes those sighs can recur very often, and I'm just going, <sighs> you know, <laughs> that's just me. And Tracy looked at me the other day, and she said, you know, you're doing that so much, I think you got a tick. <laughs> and I started thinking, do I? Maybe I do. <laughs> Maybe it's a tick. I looked at her, and I said, sweetheart, I'm sure you it's not a tick. And then I went, <laughs> That's what the word right there means, to sigh, to feel compassion, to feel pity. And I want you to know these guys that have come to Job are doing anything but that. Now, they came to do that. They came to nurture and to encourage him, but they became oxymorons. They became miserable comforters. Now, that's not the way you want to comfort. We say, well, what did they do? They came and they accused Job. They said, Job, this is obviously you have done something horrible, and that's why you're going through this. And they say a lot of true things, but totally out of context. Are y'all getting this? When you nurture and encourage someone, you want to make sure that you don't delve off into places that you just don't belong. And that's what the miserable comforters did. And Job gets so worked up over this that he starts trying to prove to them who he really is. You ever wonder why Job 28, 29, 30, right in there, he begins to talk about the details of his life and what he did. He's trying to prove to them, guys, that's not me. I didn't do what you're saying I did. And they don't even know what to tell him. They go over a hundred different things. Maybe you did this. Maybe you did that. Maybe you did the other. Maybe you did this. I mean, just constantly pointing the finger. And Job is like, look, here's the diary of my life. I haven't done these things. And he gets so caught up in defending himself and his character before those three miserable comforters that he loses sight and he gets angry and he becomes accusatory and he himself begins to blame God. Wasn't much nurture and encouraging going on there, was it? We don't want that. So don't delve off into areas that you're not familiar with. You know, they said, God is doing this to you, Job. How many of God's children do I'm not saying any of you, but how many of God's children do that today? Well, you know, God must be teaching you something through this. Well, He may be teaching you something. He may be sustaining you through something, but that doesn't mean that He did it. You get that? So be careful about delving off into areas that you shouldn't delve off into. We know that God did not do these things to Job. We know God didn't take his ten children. We know God didn't take his property away. We know God didn't take his health. But these miserable comforters are coming and blaming him for this having been done to him. You know, you could nurture so intensely that you could cross the line into enabling. Y'all know what that is, right? You know, Galatians 6 speaks to that where it says, every man bears his own burden. And then it turns around and says, you know, we need to bear the burdens of one another. That's almost like an, you know, an oxymoron there. But... We don't want to enable. We don't want to nurture and encourage to the extent that you're enabling someone in some sense. So you, how do those two come together? Let me tell you how they come together. They come together in Christ. You say, I don't want to enable. I don't want to approve of sin. But I also want to love. 
You know, I want to make sure that I nurture and I encourage. Okay, it comes together in Christ. Time and time again, Christ comes upon those that He loves. For example, you take the woman who was caught in adultery in the very act. You know, He loved her and He would not budge. He fiercely loved her, but He would not approve of her sin. He hated her sin. That's the key right there. When somebody messes up or they do something, you say, oh my goodness, I, you know, our tendency is just throw that person under the bus. They messed up. But if you're loving the way that Christ loved, you can still nurture and encourage that person because you love the person, not the sin. That is very important to understand, especially in the culture that we're living in where you've got all this people saying, well, you know, you're just hating on me or you're shaming me or things like that. You can hate the sin, but love the sinner. I tell you, that's what your Savior did. He hated your sin, but He fiercely loves. He fiercely hates your sin, but He fiercely loves you. That's how to deal with one another. And that's not enabling. That's why Jesus, every time, like the woman caught in adultery, others that He encountered, that He maybe healed them physically or spared them in some way from a timely sense, He'd look at them and He'd say, go forth and sin no more. He hated their sin, but He loved that sinner. We are supposed to love one another in that way. Hate to sin, but love the sinner. You know what that means? That means nobody ever gets thrown under the bus. Nobody ever gets thrown under the bus. Hate to sin, love the sinner. It means you'll be patient towards one another when it comes to our stumbling and our falling. It means we'll help one another when we stumble and when we fall. It means we'll assist one another in healing. You see... I hadn't really even touched on half of what I had here to talk about today, but in the time that we have spent together, I hope that you can see the example and how important it is from God's Word that we, as members of the body of Christ and visible baptized believers, that we are to nurture and to encourage one another. It doesn't look like what Lot did to his family. It does not look like what the miserable comforters did to Job. Lord willing, if we continue along this line of thought, maybe we'll talk some more in detail about what it does look like. It's not enabling. It's not approving of someone's sin. But it's loving the sinner fiercely and hating the sin. You know what? It kind of starts with you, doesn't it? You should hate your own sin. And if you do, it will help you and enable you to know how to fiercely love the body of Christ.